Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is the Dutch author of Grand Hotel Europa, a bestseller that's finally been translated into English. It's a moving and addictive masterpiece of European identity, nostalgia and the end of an era, and it asks us to really interrogate the idea of what being European means. I travelled to Genoa to meet Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer, and we spoke in various locations around the city and then ended up in his wonderful apartment in an old palazzo on the main square. The basis of uh, Grand Hotel Europa was a personal question I had been uh, asking myself for quite some time, and it question that has everything to do with my translocation from the Netherlands to Italy. Because this translocation had a couple of consequences. Um, in the first place, gradually, I began to feel a bit less Dutch, which is only very healthy for a person. I started to feel a bit more Italian, which is also a very happy consequence. But most importantly, I noticed that I felt more European. And uh, for quite some time I was asking myself, what does that mean? What does it mean to feel European? What could a European identity be? And it's actually this uh, personal question that is at the root of Grand Hotel Europa. And when you start thinking about that question, you don't even have to think for that long to arrive at the conclusion that it, European identity has a lot to do with the past and our relationship with the past. In Europe, we live really in the midst of the tangible past. No? The monuments uh, surround us, the museums. Uh, we're having a view on the Cathedral of Genoa from, from where we're talking from. And all this past that surrounds us uh, is in the first place, our, um, those are our riches, no? We are very proud of it, we feel good about it. But there is perhaps another side to it, because when you spend your entire life surrounded by beautiful remnants of glorious centuries from the past, sooner or later it may be tempting to conclude that we have had better times in the past, that the best times are behind us. And this idea of nostalgia, paradoxically, is also a constant factor in European identity. It's something we always thought. We always thought that the past was better. Even the ancient Greeks thought that. They still had to construct our entire civilization, but they thought that the golden age was in the past when the gods were still roaming the earth. So I realized that uh, a book about Europe, a novel about European identity, should be a novel about the past, our relationship to the past, and nostalgia. So what does it mean to be European? I think that it, uh, it means many things, but among those preeminently, the awareness of the past, the awareness of our history. We know what war means in other continents that's not so clear, perhaps. We know, we know many things. This, unfortunately, doesn't mean that we, are very, that we are wiser, but at least we are more conscious. 
What does it mean for the future then? I mean, one of the ideas that you put forward is that, that perhaps Europe is, is now no better than a, a, a giant theme park, just a place for, for tourists to come to experience that past. But is there, a, is there a future and what needs to happen? Well, actually, when you think about this nostalgia, no, this idea that uh, the past was better, there are, are perhaps also some objective arguments to arrive at the same conclusion in the case of Europe. No? For instance, uh, geopolitically speaking, it's obvious that we have seen better times. The times that the nations of Europe ruled the world are definitely behind us, and it's all for the better, don't get me wrong. But I think this means that Europe arrived at a point in history where it has to redefine itself as a geopolitical power. Um, it has to redefine itself in between rising and declining superpowers. And that is exactly what we're trying to do with this painstakingly difficult but incredibly beautiful project of European unification, of which Britain, unfortunately, is no longer a part. But I think also, economically speaking, we can find some arguments that we've seen better times in the past. And this is perhaps more visible in the south here, around the Mediterranean, than in the spoiled north of Europe. But I, I see it here in Italy that a country like Italy has increasing difficulties maintaining a proper old-fashioned economy, uh, meaning like an economy based on heavy industry, shipbuilding, that kind of thing doesn't make sense anymore. You cannot uh, keep up with the competition from, uh, from the emerging economies in the East. So also, economically speaking, Europe arrived at a point in history where it has to redefine itself. And what you see then, uh, again, it's something that is much more visible in the South than in the North, is that as an alternative economy, as a new means of making money, go back to this one main characteristic of European identity, which is the omnipresence of the tangible past. And that is something you can sell. You can sell tickets for your museums, for your monuments. And this brings tourism. So for that reason, uh, I realized that it was inevitable to speak also about tourism in my novel about uh, European identity. And uh, the, the things you see in, uh, in Italy, uh, especially in cities like Venice or Florence, but also Rome, is that uh, the center of the city is rapidly turning into an open-air museum, a theme park. And the question I ask myself in the book is uh, if this is the destiny for the entire continent if we are bound to be the garden of the world. I mean, many critics have said that this, the great European novel, pronounces the death of Europe. Can it be reversed? Well, actually, some critics compared the book to The Magic Mountain of Thomas Mann, which is, of course, uh, a very big compliment. And, uh, of course, I helped them to see this parallel because I explicitly cite uh, the magic mountain of Thomas Mann in the book. I mean, that's the way you do that. And uh, the reason why I do that is to draw attention to the parallel 
of my book with that famous classic, which is, of course, also a book about the end of an era, the end of uh, European culture. But from the fact that it is apparently possible to write every 100 years a new book about the end of Europe, that is also, in a way, consoling, isn't it? <laughs> I see a little bit of uh, Michel Houellebecq in your work, too. Yeah, well, Houellebecq is... Uh, he's even grimmer than I am, no? Yeah. <laughs> no, but the thing I admire about Houellebecq is... Uh, it's a technical thing. It's his way of uh, mixing themes, no? Of uh, mixing genres, actually. So... Uh, he mingles narrative and essay, and, and I think that's very effective, and that's, that's mm. something I, uh, I also do. You come back to the theme of refugees in Grand Hotel Europa when you tell the story of the bellhop and how he's got there. But what's so interesting about this is that you're very much drawing, as you do throughout your work, on your classical education and the fact that actually his story is a reflection of, of an age-old story. Yes, there is uh, there's Abdul. Abdul is on the cover of the book, and um, he is the, the bellboy of the mythological Grand Hotel Europe where part of the story is set. And um, the narrator of the book, uh, who has the very unlikely name Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer, uh, <laughs> he is, of course, very curious. Uh, he wants to know everything about it. No, he wants to know um, his story. And he is very reluctant to tell it. And actually, in the entire book, he is perhaps the only character who doesn't have this connection with the past. Because for him, the past is a very ugly place. And he is looking at the future. Actually, this is something I, I took from uh, a person I met here in Genoa, uh, a friend. Uh, he is uh, a refugee from Gambia, Comuna. Uh, I met him a couple of years ago when I was doing a documentary for um, Dutch television about immigration here. He just arrived a couple of days before that when I spoke to him. He was just a couple of days before that he was rescued from, uh, from a sinking ship. Death was still in his eyes. And uh, after we finished the documentary, I man maintained contact with him and he's still living here. He's doing very fine now. But he never wanted to tell me about his journey. He was 16 when he arrived here, so as a, as a boy, he traveled for two or three years, had seen all the horrors of Libya, but he doesn't want to tell. And he said, no, I, uh, I'm on, only interested in the future. So that is, uh, I, I modeled um, Abdul uh, after Komuna. But then, uh, yeah, I play this literary trick because in the end uh, he is convinced by the narrator to tell the story nonetheless. But then there is this other thing, now that it is very difficult to find words for this kind of experience. So he actually borrows the words. In the beginning you're not so much aware of that, but in the end uh, the reader is made to realize that he is actually following the story from translation of uh, the Aeneid of Virgil. And the reason, of course, why I do this is to draw attention to the fact that one of the most ancient texts we have, the Aeneid of Virgil, the myth of the foundation of Rome and 
as a consequence, uh, one of the founding myths of Europe, is actually a story about a refugee, a war refugee. And so many of those ancient myths come back, and indeed ancient real events. I mean, we're sitting here opposite the cathedral that was built with proceeds from the Crusades. We're also now seeing an echo of what happened with the bubonic plague. I mean, the plague initially came in to this port city, and we've seen it happen again. Yes, the the plague of the 14th century uh, came uh, in in Europe uh, via Genoa because it was the most uh, the most active port city at the time, and it's the same thing we see nowadays with our new plagues. Now the the first uh, contaminations in Italy were uh, close to the airport of Malpensa, that's the the, the modern port, and. Uh, the thing that interests me very much is uh, what could be the long-term effects of this plague. Uh, the same thing. I ask myself if we learn something from this pandemic. And, uh, for instance, uh, one of the effects of the pandemic was, of course, that it put a total stop on tourism for quite some time. We've seen Venice empty which was of a breathtaking beauty, but also of a breathtaking sadness, because Venice cannot survive without tourists anymore. It's not even a real city anymore. Nobody is living there. So these two years of pandemic gave us an excellent opportunity to think about these issues, didn't they? And uh, unfortunately, I don't see any trace whatsoever of this kind of reflection. Uh, especially not in Italian politicians or policymakers. The only thing they can think of is to point at uh, a total restoration as soon as possible of mass tourism. What's the alternative? Well, the alternative is... Um, well, actually, it's a myth that tourism is really a viable alternative economical activity. It brings some money, yes, and it creates some jobs, yes, but it creates mostly part-time jobs on a very small, uh, on a very low level, and it's, uh, the income of tourism for the big part goes to some, a few very big players who are also, for the greater part, based abroad. And tourism is by no means an innocuous phenomenon. It creates a lot of damage. It creates a lot of damage to the social texture of cities. Airbnb should be prohibited uh, yesterday. And uh, of course, if you want to to control all this, uh, you cannot leave that to the free market because the free ma- the rules of the free market are that we will have more and more of this. So. Politicians have to intervene, city councils have to intervene to keep this all in control, to keep this livable. But unfortunately, it's not very fashionable nowadays for, uh, for government or city councils to intervene with the free market. And the alternative, of course, is, is not easy, because it means that you have to be more creative. You have to be more creative about uh, forming different opportunities for um, for economical activity. But tourism is the easy solution, and it is not a real solution. 
I mean, one of the ways you tackle this, uh, the narrator in, in Grand Hotel Europa uh, is making a documentary or a film about tourism and looks at a scheme in, in the Netherlands where basically Amsterdam is sold as other parts of the country. Yes, uh, well, a large part of the story is set in Venice because Venice is perhaps the most spectacular example of a city that uh, totally, uh, irreversibly... Uh, surrendered to mass tourism, but it's by no means the only example. Uh, you see the same phenomena in, in many other different um, European cities. Among them, Amsterdam. The city of Amsterdam is uh, is rapidly becoming a touristic theme park, and residents uh, uh, move away from the center, as you see in many other European cities. At least the City Council of Amsterdam is aware of the problem and they're trying to do something about it. So the Bureau of City Marketing now does the opposite. They actually try to discourage tourists to come to Amsterdam. And one of the, one of the tricks they thought of is to convince tourists to go also to other parts of the Netherlands. For instance... Not far from Amsterdam, there's the town of Zandvoort, which has a nice beach. If you call that Amsterdam Beach, you can convince tourists to go there. Uh, somewhere else, there's the city of Muiden, where there is a castle that became Amsterdam Castle, and so on. And uh, actually, it worked in the sense that in Zandvoort and Muiden, now they have exactly the same problems that Amsterdam has but the number of tourists didn't diminish in Amsterdam. And Venice? Venice is quite hopeless. It's, it's actually very difficult to think of a way to, to turn it around. You know, the, the residents are not there anymore. In the 14th century, Venice had 140,000 inhabitants. It was one of the largest cities of Europe at the time. Nowadays, in the 21st centuries, hardly 50,000 of them remain and the number is uh, decreasing every day. Close to the Rialto Bridge, there is this pharmacy, and they have a, a counter in the, sh in the window, which in real time gives the number of residents of Venice. So you can stand there and see how this counter is uh, counting back. And it's quite an easy extrapolation to make that if it goes on, with this speed, uh, around the year 2030, Venice will be totally empty. The Grand Hotel Europa itself is taken over by a Chinese owner and he turns the beautiful Chinese room into a sort of pastiche of a London pub. And suddenly the residents, the people who come and stay at the hotel, change its Chinese coach parties. And obviously this is a metaphor for so much more that, that China is doing in the world. And I just wonder if you could talk to us about, about that. Yeah, that's one of the other things you see happening around here. Also in Italy, uh, it's perhaps more visible than elsewhere in Europe, but uh, China is buying Europe, which is perhaps not necessarily a bad thing. Grand Hotel Europa in the book has been bought by Signor Wang, a Chinese investor, and he wants to improve the hotel. 
And actually, it needs some improvement now because it hasn't been maintained properly for many years. Um, it's a bit uh, decaying and that kind of thing, and hardly any uh, guests come there. So it, it needs some work. And uh, this Chinese owner puts himself to work, and uh, he actually tries to make the hotel even more European, except that... Of course, it's not real European European. So there is this uh, this very nice nineteenth uh, century Chinese room. No, like that was the fashion at the days in the hotel. For Signor Wang, a Chinese room is of course not European. So he rebuilds that into an English pub. Do you think that the the Chinese money flooding into into Europe is is a threat? I don't know. No, I am worried about uh, things that Chinese government have control about, like like the 5G network and that kind of thing. But I don't see so much danger in uh, Chinese individuals buying shops in Italy, buying bars, restaurants in Italy, and actually turning them again into uh, flourishing uh, establishments. I don't think there's much government control there. And it's actually often an improvement. So I think it's, a, it's, it's quite a complex question, actually. In both books, you kind of tie all of the themes together. And I wonder what the heartbeat behind both works really is for you. Well, both La Superba and Grand Hotel Europa are novels that very explicitly want to relate to the times we live in. I really want to raise a couple of very good questions about modern life, about uh, globalization and Europe. But having said that, uh, both of them are novels. The motor of Grand Hotel Europa is this uh, heartbreaking love story. Actually, it reminds me uh, of an interview I read with uh, Margaret Atwood, who is also a writer who very explicitly uh, deals with uh, the world of today, you know, in books like The Handmaid's Tale and that kind of thing. And the interviewer asked her if she thought that that was the task of a writer to talk about uh, the world of today. And I liked her response very much. Uh, She said, no, that is the task of me as a citizen. My task as a writer is to make you turn the pages. Is it the task of the reader then to take on those questions? Is it your job to make us think more deeply about these things that matter to all of us? I would be very grateful if uh, readers, if only for five minutes, stop to think about the questions I raise in my books. Perhaps I don't have the answers, perhaps it's not my task to provide the answers, but let it be my task to pose a couple of very good questions. I'd like to talk a little bit about language. You came here speaking very little Italian, and now you appear to be fluent, at least to me, that the only thing I can say is ciao, (laughs) or (laughs) vaffanculo. Good beginning. (laughs) Uh, How do you go about learning a language? 
Well, actually, um, when I arrived in Italy and decided to stay here, that was, of course, my top priority to learn Italian uh, as quickly as possible. And uh, the best language teacher is necessity. So as soon as I realized that it was necessary, it also went very quickly. It also helped that I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed talking Italian. And um, it also helps a bit that uh, you have a linguistic background. So I'm not too much surprised to see that there is a subjunctive in a language and that kind of thing. But they say that uh, one of the best ways of learning a language is uh, learning through love. And of course it's true. There's nothing like learning a foreign language with your tongue in another person's mouth. I just wanted to have a quick look at the, the rest of your work because, of course, you continue to be a journalist. You write a column and you also write a sort of response to events of the day, but in sonnet form. Yeah, that's, that's funny, isn't it? That's uh, something I like to do very much. Now, for the Dutch newspaper, um, NRC, I write every fortnight, I write uh, a column in verse. So it's a column on actuality, on topicality, uh, in the form of a sonnet. It's quite challenging, but I like challenging things. We're talking two days after Russia has invaded Ukraine, and by the time this interview is broadcast, we don't know what kind of situation we will be in in Europe in terms of the war. But obviously this is something that you're going to have to address in your, in your fortnightly sonnet very soon. As you begin to think about where we are now, uh, how do you feel? Yeah, it's really in the top of my mind. It's uh, it's a big thing that is happening. And uh, actually, um, I find it also very difficult to arrive at some kind of conclusion, uh, about some conclusive analysis about it. It's too early, I think. I, I'm very worried, but I don't have any wisdom to share about it at this point. I wonder how much, I mean, we've obviously, as you said right at the beginning, this is a continent that knows war. It has shaped us. It's shaped the city of Genoa. Are we about to be reshaped? And is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, being reshaped by war is necessarily a bad thing. Now, I think it could be a good idea to shape up a bit, but uh, not through war. And it's, uh, it's scaring to realize that uh, the war is terribly close, no? I think it's, uh, it's hardly 2,000 kilometers from here, I think even less. So, yeah, it's really on our doorstep, not to say in the heart of our continent. And then, of course, well, right now when we're speaking, it's the, the war is just one day old, but it is already very probable that uh, Putin will win. And it's very difficult to imagine the consequences of that. And the consequences it will have for the tranquility in the Baltic states and that kind of thing. Uh, the position of NATO, the position of the European Union, it is, it is a huge event. But we continue and we continue with our work and you continue with your thoughts and you are already working on, a, on another book. And this time you're going to ancient Rome? Ancient Greece, actually, yeah, even further back. <laughs> now, it's an, it's an old idea. I have um, a historical novel set in ancient Greece, um, 
centered uh, on the figure, the very colorful figure of uh, Alcibiades, who really lived during the Peloponnesian War at the end of the, uh, the era of Athenian democracy. And uh, I think times are ripe to do that now. Uh, one of the things that interests me about it is that he is really a protagonist in this period of history in which Athenian democracy actually ends. And we perhaps are not used to think about democracy as something that could end one day. Perhaps it's due to American propaganda during the Cold War that we are led to believe that democracy is the end of history. No, it's the only thing we have to do is arrive at democracy and then we'll be happy ever, ever after. But of course it isn't like that. Democracy can end. So, uh, actually I'm writing about uh, the fall of democracy, Athenian democracy, due to populism, which is eerily uh, recognizable. And there was a lot of war in my book, and now also that becomes relevant. Yeah. It was Churchill, wasn't it, who said uh, during the Second World War, during the bombardments of London, uh, when uh, people urged him to close down the theatres, that he said, but if we close down the theatres, then what do we fight for? So if we are looking for a positive note, I think that we even in a situation of war, we know what we are fighting for. We know freedom, democracy, and we have our European culture to stand up for. So the positive note is that uh, it's all about culture. Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer, thank you very much. Grand Hotel Europa by Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer is published by Fourth Estate. And do pick up the May issue of Monocle magazine, which carries a further interview with the author and stunning photographs of my trip to meet him in Genoa. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>